0: You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to We Are Libertarians. Uh, you are listening to a very special episode of We Are Libertarians. This is a series we call Defined. Uh, a while back, uh, as you heard in the first episode, you know I was thinking about the definitions that we use. And uh, so I, I want to trace back the history of libertarian thought and uh, define terms and then also expand that out eventually into the you know the liberal space, the conservative space, and politics at large. And with me, helping with me on this series is Matt Whitliff. Matt, how are you? Good. How are you doing, Chris? Pretty well, pretty well. Uh, so that's a little bit of what we're doing here. Uh, The first episode I thought went well, and so today we're going to talk a little bit about the history of anarchism, and a little bit about, uh, as we kind of discussed in the last episode, you had the uh, scope of human history was essentially a group of people accepting that they would be ruled. Right, right. And then over time you start to see that, uh, you know, you start to see strains in John Locke and others who start to say, maybe there's other alternatives besides having a strong man rule over us, a king, uh, a whatever. The whole concept of individual liberty. That's exactly right. Uh, And today we're going to talk about anarchy and the beginnings (laughs) of anarchy. And really it begins where, Matt?
1: Begins with, uh, you know, most people will trace this back to William Godwin with his publication of the Inquiry Concerning political justice in the uh, very early 1800s, uh,
0: British writer. Right. Yes, he was. He was a contemporary of uh, Thomas Paine and Edmund Burke, and actually was inspired by their back and forth over the French re- Revolution. Uh, you know, Thomas Paine wrote "Rights of Man" in response to Burke's "Reflections on the Revolution in France," and then. This crackpot, (laughs) it wasn't a crackpot, but I'm sure people thought he was at the time, comes along and says, what if we just have no government? What if we just got rid of it all? What if we got rid of it all? Uh, And it was the first work espousing the principle of anarchism. Um, And so this is from the Wikipedia entry. Uh, Political justice argues that humanity will inevitably progress. It argues for human perfectibility and enlightenment. McCann explains that... Political justice is, first and foremost, a critique of political institutions. Its vision of human perfectibility is anarchist insofar as it sees government and related social practices such as property, monopoly, marriage, monarchy, as restraining the progress of mankind. Godwin believed that government, quote, "...insinuates itself into our personal dispositions and insensibly communicates to its own spirit to our private transactions." Instead, Godwin proposes a society in which human beings use their reason to decide the best course of action. The very existence of government, even those founded through consensus, demonstrates that people cannot yet regulate their conduct by dictates, by the dictates of reason. Um, it goes on. Godwin argued that the link between politics and morality has been severed, and he wants to restore it. McCann explains in Godwin's vision Quote, as public opinion develops in accordance with the dictates of reason, so too should political institutions change until, finally, they will wither away altogether, leaving the people to organize themselves into what would be a direct democracy. Yeah. Uh, so, it's it's a revolutionary idea. Uh, it has a lot of contradictions in it, but it clearly had an impact and set the stage for, for many different uh, thinkers.
1: Yeah, and, and a lot of the places where he's coming from, you know, is is not necessarily from, oh, liberty is the best thing and, you know, we should we should shed ourselves from the shackle of the state in that way. He comes at it, I think, from a very pragmatic, almost, uh, you know, technocratic view, if you will, of like, you know, the government's not going to do a good job at this. You're right. going to do a better job at it yourself and thus, you know, it should wither away in, in that regard as opposed to... You know, a uh, real foundation of like rights and principles around that, right? Right.
0: So it, it he, uh, he inspires a lot of people, but anarchy doesn't stop there. It, it moves on to whom next?
1: No, I mean, the next major figure is going to be Pierre Joseph Proudhon, uh, a Frenchman. And uh, Produn's writings become really the, the basis of modern well not really just modern just purely of anarchist thought right because right. he, he is the first person to you know use the word anarchy in in his writings and formally uh formally push that as a as an ideology and as a concept and and produce a uh very much a radical right so to to understand uh where he comes from you know some understanding of french history is interesting right so okay. so you've got the 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 king who was you know the 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 uh regimes of the king for for centuries and upon centuries leading up to then the french revolution in the seven late 1780s 1790s then napoleon and then i mean there's a huge back and forth of of you know monarchists and then uh you know radical republicans and then you know sort of conservative bourgeoisie uh kind of aristocrats mm-hmm. who are like let's try to find a balance in between the two and the pendulum is swinging Hard for for decades, right? Right. So that you've got restoration of the king, uh, and then they're overthrown again, and and through this whole process, um, you know, Perdun sees I think both sides of it, and and is like, there's there's a different path here, right? All, right. all of this is garbage. Um, you know, the ruling class, whether it's you know through through the king or through you know Republicans who are you know essentially. Still, the people in power are the people who you know have money and have land and and all of this type of stuff, right? Um, he he's you know the first kind of radical anti-capitalist, rad- anti-government anarchist.
0: Capitalism didn't seem like it was really even a thing yet. <laughs> no, <laughs> yet no, anti-
1: not not so much, right? And and you know it, it's maybe not explicitly anti-capitalist, although Marx's writings are are contemporaneous here um, you know, I, I don't know the exact timing of when, uh, each of Proudhon's works kind of co- coincide with, with Marx, but it is, it's yeah. contemporaneous here. And, and it's really the rejection of, you know, going for the classless society, the unshackling of the aristocracy and, and all of that. Right.
0: Yeah. So if you, uh, whoa, excuse me, I'm still playing with all the mics. They're still all being <laughs> a, a, a little buzzy and a little weird. So uh, so, Proudhon was uh, born in 1809, died in 1865, and he was a French politician, and he, he was a founder of the mutualist philosophy, which uh, James Neese subscribes to, uh, Matt Cano, Can-il- Cano. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, Matt, uh, the libertarian socialist, uh, probably would trace him him's, his own beliefs back to uh, Proudhon. Uh, he was the first person to declare himself an anarchist and uh he's regarded as one of the most uh influential uh, theorists along those lines he became a member of the french parliament after the revolution of 1848 where after he referred to himself as a federalist yeah i mean that
1: is kind of a matter of convenience to a degree i mean that the revolution of 1848 you know you've got revolutions sweeping throughout Europe right uh, for constitutional governments and republics and um, you know alongside
0: of that he was he was able to you know wedge himself in, he is uh, the originator of the concept of property is theft. Yes. So you could probably the, the think the predecessor th- of taxation is Yes. Theft. And I'm sure so you can think if you uh, scream taxation is theft uh, like a crazy person all the time then you can probably thank him for that as well. Yeah, I mean and
1: that is really his um, you know the greatest hits of Purdue, right? It, <laughs> is uh, his his first major work was entitled What is Property? Or an inquiry into the principle and right of government, right. Um, but the the argument in there is the assertion that you know property itself is theft. So, so this you know again kind of the uh, the conclusion of like how how can we create a classless society? How can we you know not be under the thumb of of the ruling elite and such? Is that you know you got to get rid of property.
0: So, he uh, attracted the attention of Marx, and they actually met uh, while Marx was exiled in Paris, and uh, they had a lot of correspondence, and the friendship finally ended when Marx responded to Proudhon uh, in the system of economic contradictions, or the philosophy of poverty, Uh, and it basically became the source of the split between the anarchists and the Marxists and uh, in, in the parties. So... Uh, Then, and essentially, Proudhon favored workers' associations or co-ops as well as individual worker peasant possessions over private ownership or the nationalization of land and workplaces. He considered social revolution to be achievable in a peaceful manner. Uh, So those are some of the ways uh, he... (laughs) Anarchy is order without power, uh, he wrote in Confessions of a Revolutionary, the phrase which later inspired, in the view of some, the anarchist circled A, symbol today, one of the most common graffiti in the urban landscape, (laughs) and uh, he tried to create a national bank to be funded by what would be an abortive attempt at an income tax on capitalists and shareholders, Uh, so... He basically kind of created the credit union with uh, interest-free loans. Pragmatic anarchism. Yes, exactly right. <laughs> so, so that's uh, he's he's a really important figure if you want to look uh, more into him. If you're into you know that commie anarchist shit.
1: Yeah, and and again, <laughs> I I think understanding the origins of of the various theories and right, you, your interview recently with with Matt Caniel or Canoe or, or yeah, uh, clearly there there is a, a direct lineage um, from, you know, the thoughts of Proudhon to, uh, you know, various strains of, of anarchy, just about
0: every other strain of anarchy other than
1: anarcho-capitalism, frankly. Right.
0: Uh, so, it, it, it <clears throat> is interesting. I think a lot of people would be surprised to learn how closely associated anarchism was with communism and socialism and uh, those philosophies, especially early on. Yeah, I mean, it's
1: really at the heart of the struggle is who who owns uh you know property and property both being from kind of the real physical property as well as the the result of one's own labor right right and 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 uh you know it, a very complex and um you know, uh, interesting question, philosophically, politically, from a, from an uh, from an economic standpoint, right? And you know, you know, we sit here as as strong believers in private property, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, this is the analog set of thinking to it that if you uh, extinguish or remove the concept of private property and move to collective property, or you know uh that is the foundation that you know these are kind of the the dominoes that begin to fall then philosophically
0: yeah and the execution of some of these ideas are how we end up with the uh individualistic anarchist which we'll see in in a few moments um so tell us about the first international or the International Working Man's Association.
1: Yeah, well, so again, one of the 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 pieces at the center of all of this is, uh, you know, the fruits of the labor, right? And and so in order to rise up against the, uh, you know, the the class of of people who you know own the means of production and and are, you know. Siphoning off, you know, the the profits of of uh, of labor, right? This is the construction uh, on socialist and you know, to a degree, syndicalist or anal- anarchist principles. Uh, really, I don't want to necessarily call it a, a you know the modern labor union, right? Mm-hmm. But it certainly has roots there, right? Uh, sure. By by in many ways, and so this is the uh, organization to uh, bring workers together to um, you know the common workers, if you will to, uh, fight for, for their equal share. Right. And, um, you know, a lot of that was fueled by then, uh, the writings of both Proudhon and, and Marx and, and other, uh, you know, economists and philosophers at the time. Right. So the, the first internationals established in, in 1864, kind of trying to fuse the anarchist wing along with the socialist wing, um, you know, Marx is there. I think Engels may have already split from Marx at that point, but, um, Perdon, uh and probably more importantly uh Mikhail Buk- uh Bakunin Bakunin yeah. Uh, yeah who who's really becomes the I think the um you know the flag bearer of of the anarchist wing of this all uh as Prodon I believe dies I think around well, well, 1865 yeah, 18, yeah 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 so so Bakunin becomes the um you know the figurehead within the working, you know, within this organization from an anarchy standpoint, and Marx uh, from the socialist standpoint.
0: Okay, and that really uh, starts to play it out in. I mean, because ideas sitting in a in a parlour chamber discussing ideas, or a beer hall, or a coffee shop, or on Facebook, even now, uh, a lot of what we've talked about is intellectuals writing to each other, having conversations. But this is where you really start to see a lot of these ideas uh, be applied on the ground in, in the political movement, uh, and it really plays itself out in something called the Haymarket Affair. So, what happened there?
1: Yeah, I mean, so the Haymarket Affair is, is the, is, is the uh, antecedent of this in, in, as it spreads internationally, right? So, uh, all of this starts in, in Western Europe, predominantly in, in France uh, and, and a little bit in Russia, right. As, you know, Bakunin, German, uh, with Marx, et cetera. Right. And, and it picks up some steam. And, uh, by, by the late 1870s, uh, you know, the, it's, there's, you know, working man's associations, the international association has truly become really international and, and cross Atlantic and it's, and it's here in the U S and, um, so, anarchy is gaining steam, or more importantly, probably, you know, workers' rights, um, you know, labor rights. And uh, the Haymarket bombing in 1886 uh, is, happened in Chicago. And, and you know, up until that point, I think there was a lot of sympathy for... Um, you know, maybe not quite full on anarchism, but certainly uh, the socialist movement around this. And it, it pretty well gets squashed out pretty hard when, when, you know, many people die in the bombing in Chicago.
0: Well, this is a total setup, to be honest. I mean, if you read about the history of the Haymarket, I mean, you, you want to talk about false flag attacks. Uh, <laughs> this may be the, one of the first. Um, it, it begins where, you know, it, kind of what's happening, especially in Chicago, you know, if we're talking, what, eight, you said 1886?
1: I think the actual bombing is 1886, yeah.
0: 1886. You're talking about a rapid expansion. You know, after the Civil War, there's something called the Long Depression, and then out of the Civil War, you have this rapid expansion and a lot of immigration, and uh, you know you've if you've ever read Upton Sinclair's uh, what was the book uh, The Jungle The Jungle, uh, which was the worst book I've ever read in my life. It was I hated that <laughs> book so much, such a boring book. But uh, you know it was such an impactful book at the time because people just didn't have any kind of concept of what it was like working in these slums, uh, you know. And that's it's sort of funny to see. Uh, it's like Mm -hmm. the modern, the jungle, the Showtime's the Shame uh, Shameless show. So, you know, you have people in these slums, and they're starting to fight for um, more rights. One of them being the eight-hour workday, and this is you always see your union Democrat friends. You know, on Labor Day, you're like, what's the point of this again? And they're like, well, labor unions gave you the eight-hour workday. Like, yeah, in 1886. like, yeah. <laughs> um, And Proudhon was actually a, a big... No, uh, I think it might have been Robert Owen who was the big proponent of this, which we'll talk about him in a moment. But, uh, you know, this movement gets started in England and France and Europe and then spreads to here. And so people are fighting for eight-hour workdays as opposed to 12, 14 hour days mm-hmm. and uh, they start they start picketing for better wages uh, you know especially once eventually once Ford comes along then it really picks up. but uh, you know all through this period of antebellum America and uh, in the Progressive era even, you have constant battles between companies uh, and their private security agencies like the Pinkertons, which eventually, you know, the Pinkertons were basically this private security agency who were the police force, the th- paid thugs, essentially, <laughs> right. of corporations. So let's say you have a company. Well, they're the ones with guns that kind of keep you in line. And so, go ahead. The
1: anarchist dream. <laughs> yeah, exactly
0: right. <laughs> and uh, and then you have strikes. And so these strikes are all busted by... Um, By Pinkertons, by these private security agencies, and eventually those get reeled in, and uh, the Pinkertons go on to form, what was it, the uh, Secret Service? Yeah, I think so. I I should have said the anarcho-capitalist dream. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) Uh, Roving bands of armed bandits, yes. Uh, So... Uh, we're gonna get hate mail about that one. so <laughs> so in Chicago, you have people living on hundred dollar fifty a day. They're working over 60 hours a week on a six day work week. and uh, it becomes Chicago becomes a, a battleground for many of these unions. And uh, employers respond with the anti-union measures uh, and walkouts with firing, blacklisting union members, locking out workers, recruiting strike breakers, meaning headbusters, Mm -hmm. uh, employing spies, thugs, and private security forces, exacerbating the ethnic tension in in order to divide the workers. This is from Wikipedia. Um, I choose choose that just because it's such a clear explanation and easily accessible for you um, and me. Uh, so, you have um, May Day strikes in October of 1884, uh, and people start preparing for a general strike across the city, and on Saturday, um, May 1st, thousands of workers went on strike, and rallies were held throughout the U.S. with the cry, eight-hour workday with no cut in pay.
1: And-, and, and May 1st, by the way, is is where almost every other country in the world celebrates Labor Day. Really? Okay, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Today.
0: What's- was it because of this particular incident? That we moved it, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, but I'm d- saying, like, May Day, you hear about that all the time. Was it because of this no, particular time period? No, I it started before that. I'd, I'd have to double-check that okay. part, yeah. And so, estimated number of striking workers across the re- uh, was 300,000 to half a million. Uh, in New York City, the number of May Day demonstrators in, in uh, 1886 were at 10,000. 11,000 in Detroit, 10,000 in Milwaukee, Uh, thirty to 40,000 in Chicago. So it was incredibly intense in Chicago, especially around the lumberyards. On May 3rd, striking workers in Chicago met near uh, the McCormick Harvesting Machine plant uh, where they had been uh, locked out. And uh, they had a lot of different speakers, uh, including August Spees. And uh, then on this particular day, uh, they, there was a well-planned and coordinated, the general strike to this point had remained, uh, well-planned and coordinated, the mm-hmm. general strike to this point had remained nonviolent. and, uh, when the end of the workday bell sounded, however, a group of workers surged to the gates to confront the strike, uh, strike breakers, uh, the scabs, yeah. despite calls <laughs> for calm by-spees, the police fired on the crowd, two McCormick workers were killed, and that, of course, anytime there's violence, that's when things just get lit. Yep. I mean, and and we've then, said that a and million then times. Hell ensues. <laughs> yeah. It's like the, we had that one period in American politics right at the beginning of Obama, where you had a lot of people who right-wing militia groups were a real concern to the media, mm-hmm. <laughs> and you always had. And then, so because there was antagonism from the media, you had right-wing people saying, "Oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna shoot," and I'm blah blah blah. So many of us were like, "The worst possible thing you can do is commit any act of violence right If you're in Donald Trump's crowd, even if he pays for your your medical bills and lawyer fees, violence is what they want, mm-hmm. and it gives credence to the other side. Yeah, yeah, always, always. So the rally began peacefully under a light rain on May fourth. Uh, August Spees, Albert Parsons, and Samuel Felden spoke. Um, and there are about three thousand six hundred to 3,000 people there, and eventually it, it just turns into, uh, they were holding a rally the next day after this violence had broken out, and the city did not want them to, the police did not want them to, and they held a rally, they were saying it was peaceful, they were having speeches, listening, it was calm, and then the police start marching towards them in battle gear, basically, mm-hmm. dressed like a SWAT team in Ferguson. And uh, as the police start to approach, someone throws a a poorly made bomb with dynamite in it. It kills uh, several police officers. And then from then on out, it leads to trials. It leads to the anarchists being completely smeared uh, Mm -hmm. across. And there was just a huge outpouring of support for the police officers. For the state. For the state. Even though the police officers were the one that really were the aggressors in that incident. It didn't matter. the The press stood by the state, yeah. and the anarchists were deemed.
1: Yeah. So, so any sort of popular, you know, populist support for for the concepts of anarchy at that point were were reasonably well snuffed out in right. the United States, right? So, and and I did check. Um, May Day, May first is used to commemorate. Actually, the International Workers' Day is what it's usually referred to to,
0: to commemorate the um, the uh, Haymarket bombing. So right, yeah. So you end up uh, with the anarchist wing eventually devolving into the labor unions, which devolve into the Democratic Party, which have turned into uh, a blue collar base of support for the Democrats. And I don't know that unions or the blue collar support for Democrats will exist in twenty five years. Um, yeah, but uh, you know, it seems to me that a lot of those people went for Trump you know
1: yeah absolutely that seems to be the tide um so yeah that that becomes picking up like you know where where the left went (laughs) you know right uh when we get to when we get to that part of the defined series here right so
0: yeah so let's go back in time and talk about american anarchism uh and this next guy is robert owen yeah and robert owen is uh a very he exists in the time of the American Founders. He actually spoke, when he came to America, uh, to the, to a joint session of Congress, and uh, Thomas Jefferson, James Monroe, John Quincy Adams, James Madison were all there to hear him speak about socialism and the utopian dream that he had. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he was a contemporary of the Founders, and he was born in England in 1771, uh, and uh, he he was a social reformer and a founder of utopian socialism and the co-op movement. Uh, and he got heavily involved in uh, the 1800s in improving worker conditions and was instrumental in, uh, the, uh, he bought a textile mill at one point and he was from a wealthy family like most socialists are. (laughs) And, uh, eventually, uh, he, this, this, textile mill, he kind of took some of his socialist ideas and applied it to uh, what he was doing, uh, sold it off because he wanted to do something a little bit grander, and uh, so he ends up, uh, uh, so this, this textile mill, like even Nicholas I of Russia it was basically uh, a, a, workers, it was the center of their life, and he tried to improve all of their lives, and mm-hmm. so it was seen as a new model. Um, so he, but he was very involved in the intellectual circles of the time, like Jer- Jeremy Bentham, who, if you've ever seen the philosopher who uh, preserved his head and body and, and yeah. is mummified, you can see Jeremy's head. Um, uh, and so, in 1813, he authored and published a new view of society, or Essays on the Principle of the Formation of the Human Character, and uh, explained a lot of his ideas. Owen felt that. Now, tell me if you think this is workable, Matt. (laughs) Owen felt that human character is formed by circumstances over which individuals have no control. As a result, individuals cannot be praised or blamed for their behavior or situation in life. This principle led Owen to conclude that the secret behind the correct formation of people's characters is to place them under proper environmental influences, physical, moral, and social, from their earliest years. These notions of irresponsibility of humans and the effect of early influences on the individual's character formed the basis of Owen's system of education and social reform. So, no responsibility whatsoever.
1: <laughs> well, okay. So let me I'll, let me attempt to at least interpret maybe a little bit differently here, right? So, I mean, I I don't think he's coming. I think he's coming from a very paternalistic right. standpoint, and and um, you know he's he's very much a utopian uh you know quote unquote socialist as opposed to an economic socialist right Right. his whole philosophy is coming from you know people can be swayed in all sorts of different directions and and their life circumstances and the events that come around them you know may not really be under their control and you you can't figure out how they're going to act from there and it you know why blame them right? right so let's let's get people to live in communities that are that are well structured nurturing cooperative and caring so that we all have the right influences around us um and can grow together right? right so i think it's it's a you know i think it's a very noble um you know idea and and you know certainly utopian idea um you know can you can you execute that at grand scale i mean that's always the challenge right right <laughs> Yeah, I mean,
0: so many of the workers that he imported into his factory were orphans. They were thieves, drunks, um, and basically tried to help them turn their life around and was somewhat successful in many ways. Uh, And he had a a huge, based on that paternalistic, he's like, okay, well, we've got all these problems. Why don't we try to weed that out? And he started nursery schools mm -hmm. and was uh, actually, he has a lasting... Uh, lasting heritage here in Indiana. Because sure does. He, he, New Harmony. He comes to Indiana at one point, and uh, the Common School Fund in the Indiana Constitution provides that the state of Indiana is constitution, constitutionally obligated to fund schools. And uh, that is uh, a piece of his heritage uh, from when he came here. Uh, and so, eventually, he, he gets the idea that he... Wants to build a model society for socialism. Uh, he wants to implement what he calls a new view of society. Uh, he, because of the success of his um, basically charitable business, he becomes kind of a celebrity in in both uh, Britain and the United States. Speaks to the House of Commons about the poor laws, uh, and basically. Because of the Napoleonic Wars, there's not a lot going on, so he tries. He says, I'm going to go to America and try something different. Um, And what he wants to build in America, where he can raise the capital, is a community of about 1,200 people, where he says they should be settled on land from 1,000 to 1,500 acres, with all of them living in one large building that had a public kitchen and dining halls. Uh, Eventually, he expanded that to 3,000. Owen also recommended that each family should have its own private apartment and the responsibility for the care of their children until they reached the age of three. Thereafter, children would be raised by the community at large, but their parents would have access to them at uh, mealtimes and other occasions. Owen further suggested that these socialistic communities might be established by individuals, parishes, counties, or other governmental units. In every case, there would be effective supervision by qualified persons. The work would be the enjoyment, and uh, the work and the enjoyment of its results should be experienced communally. Owen believed that this idea would be the best form for the reorganization of society in general. He called his vision a socialistic utopia, the new moral world. Uh, he he didn't change it for most of his life. Um, he was married to it. And a number of these communities increased. I mean, there were Owenite communities all across. But the first one, uh, and the the granddaddy was New Harmony, Indiana. New Roman, yeah. I, I've been to New Harmony, Indiana, uh, and I've <laughs> seen it. It's a beautiful town in southern Indiana. Kind of if you, if you think of Indiana like a boot, it's more towards the toe. Mm-hmm. It's kind of right on the toe by the river. Uh, and it was founded by George Rapp's Harmony Society in 1824. Uh, they owned the property and uh, they called it Harmony and they re- decided to relocate to Pennsylvania. So Owen took it over uh, in October of, uh, in, oh, I'm sorry, January 1825. And um, so he goes around trying to uh, gin up support for the idea of this. That's why he was speaking to all of those uh, folks. Um, he eventually convinces a, a wealthy scientist, philanthropist, and Scott, who was living in Philly, to join him in New Harmony. William McClure McClure became the financial partner uh, for this idea, and uh, they eventually attracted scientists, educators, and artists such as Thomas Say, Charles Alexander Lesueur. Madame Marie Duclos fregato, <laughs> fregatoni amongst others, the individuals helped to establish a utopian community right here in Southern Indiana, and the village of Unity and Mutual Cooperation uh, never got built. Mm-hmm. How long do you think New Harmony lasted, Matt? Boy, I don't know, and I don't have it up on my screen. Okay, so, so they've got I'll they've say... got some of the cream of the crop, some of the best in America. Uh, they they had a thousand residents by the end of the first year. Six years. Six years. Nope. Okay. Two. Two years. Two, Two years. years. Two years is what it. How long it lasted. Uh, one of the members of this socialistic experience, uh, Josiah Warren. Josiah Warren. Yeah. One of the participants at New Harmony asserted that the community was doomed to failure due to a lack of individual sovereignty and personal property. In describing the Owenite community. Warren explained, We had a world in miniature. We had enacted the French Revolution over and over again with despairing hearts instead of corpses as a result. (laughs) It appeared that it was nature's own inherent law of diversity that had conquered us. Our united interests were directly at war with the individualities of the persons and circumstances and the instinct of self-preservation. Warren's observations on the reasons for the community's failure led to the development of American individualistic anarchism, one of which of which he was the original theorist. Uh, some historians have attributed the demise of New Harmony experiment to a series of disagreements amongst its members. No, s Sherlock. <laughs> so, you know, and we were taken there as kids and shown New Harmony. Oh wow! Okay. And uh, I think it was in middle school or high school. You know, it's a long day, but it's a field trip, and the, you know, it's partially like here's different theories of government. Uh, okay, but I go to uh, I went to a school that was in a fairly conservative part of the the uh, of the country, mm-hmm. and they're like, yeah, g- guess what? It didn't work out because people were <laughs> people like are, I had a a teacher who was just like individuals are individuals and communism doesn't work right 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 right
1: so so Warren right is, is probably the first kind of self-declared self-identifying anarchist in in the us right right and and you know he he hangs on to some economic socialist beliefs but his his major contribution on this track is is as you mentioned the the you know kind of the individualism strain of of, of American, you know, anarchist light thought, right? right? And and that leads to folks like Lysander Spooner, and also ties into writers like Emerson and Thoreau as well, right? Yeah.
0: So, what what part of the libertarian heritage do Ralph Waldo Emerson and and Henry David Thoreau play?
1: I, I think it's really just from the, you know, the rugged individualist, um, you, know, uh, you know, connection with kind of what. What you have around you, and and making it on your own, and um, you know that spirit of
0: um, well, civil disobedience.
1: Yeah, the, and the, and certainly the civil disobedience, right? That comes along alongside that uh, in Emerson's writing, I believe, right? right. Or Is it Thoreau? I, I get those two I think, confused. I don't know.
0: <laughs> I I always do too. I couldn't tell you Emerson from Thoreau, although I did in New Hampshire pass several Thoreau uh, locations, but I, I didn't get a chance to stop and see Walden Pond. But there you go. Um but you mentioned Spooner. Yep. And uh Lysander Spooner is somebody that you probably have heard if you've been a libertarian for more than a year or so. Uh or at least seen his photo. Uh you probably know him best from his greatest hit, which is trying to set up a competing post office. Hmm. Um you know, Spooner Spooner was truly the deck beard of his time like it, there's no wonder that the uh, the libertarians that love Spooner love Spooner because the more you read about this guy, you're like, yep, he's one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's he's um, an incredibly smart guy. He's born in 1808 in Athole, Massachusetts. <laughs> Athole, Massachusetts. Uh, he dies in 1887 at 79 years of age. Uh, he wrote No Treason and the Unconstitutionality of Slavery. And uh, so he is, uh, he, he's you know, as he's learning there in Athol, uh, he advocates something called natural law or the science of justice wherein acts of initiato- initiatory coercion against individuals and their property were considered criminal because they were immoral while the so-called criminal acts that violated only man-made, see, arbitrary legislation were not necessarily criminal. So clearly, somebody who yeah. you know fits right in our wheelhouse.
1: Yeah, he's uh, he's certainly not afraid to to uh, challenge challenge the establishment and, and question you know any authority that they have and and um, you know I think. Broadly speaking, you know your average person on the street—if they, well, I mean your average person on the street hasn't heard of him—but you know, your if you run into a non-libertarian, right, <laughs> right, is,
0: is his contributions towards abolition? He's like James Weeks in a in a Civil War suit. <laughs> um, so he studies under law under uh, two prominent politicians and lawyers, John Davis and Charles Allen. But he doesn't go to college, so he doesn't get a degree, and so therefore, <laughs> the courts refuse to recognize him as a lawyer. Um, But with his mentors, he sets up a practice in Worcester, Massachusetts, after only three years, defying the courts. And uh, he regarded the three-year privilege for college graduates as a state-sponsored discrimination against the poor and also providing a monopoly income to those who met the requirements. And uh, he argued that he should be a lawyer because no one has yet ever dared advocate in direct terms so monstrous a principle as that the rich ought to be protected by law from the competition of the poor." Um, so he he said that he should be able to be a lawyer because a professional license is a violation of the natural right to contract
1: mm-hmm. yeah yep so you know with with spooner in his you know long career of writing really um you know kind of rounds out the nineteenth century i think and and now as we move into 20th century america um and and kind of the <coughs> uh ancestry of of libertarian slash anarchist thinking you you start to move into you know names that you know people will probably know a lot more and they're borrowing bits and pieces from you know the american individualist ideal the the anarchism that that springs out of uh socialist worker type of things in in europe and and fusing that all together and you get people now like Ludwig von Mises, and, right. and Ayn Rand, and you know, to a lesser degree, H. L. Mencken, one of and, my personal favorites. Yeah, love love Mencken. Maybe not truly a libertarian
0: per no, se. Not. No, he was he was definitely he was anti authority. He was anti power. Exactly, uh, and that's why he would be sometimes considered in that. But you know, Rose Wilder Lane, Albert J. Nock, Leonard Reed. You know, so, some of these names that you hear. Um, uh, even Hayek, uh, yeah, uh, uh, Hayek would would be sort of at the. He's not in that first half. He's sort of mid-century, um, but uh, yeah. Uh, th- 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 so let me let me just say because uh, I don't want to let this go by. Um, uh, there is, uh. One of the best things that Spooner did was he lit. He was instrumental in the uh, abolition movement. Yeah, and basically wrote the legal. I mean, he was a legal advisor to many runaway slaves. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was someone who was uh, writing the legal. You know, the unconstitutionality of slavery was the legal framework. He wrote that in the 1840s. In the 1840s, for abolishing slavery. So, he, he was really instrumental in uh, fighting for human freedom uh, for African slaves and, and black Americans. So, uh, rich heritage amongst uh, libertarians and Lysander Spooner specifically uh, for that. Um, so, let's do this. Let's, let's stop there. Okay. Okay. Let's leave the 20th century to the third episode. Yep. Because libertarianism in the in the 20th century becomes much more complex. And uh I want to make sure that we're following all of it, but uh you've got a lot of a that's really when libertarianism starts to take hold. If you look over the overarching um framework of what we've talked about over the last 300 years, um that's when it becomes a it moves from those single guys yeah. talking back and forth, batting ideas around. Then you people know, on the edges of already established political movements, maybe right. you
1: know, throwing nuggets out there. But that they're are, fringe people. Yes, right. The
0: twentieth right. century is when libertarianism, as, and, as we know it here, exactly, becomes a political force. I'm not talking about the Libertarian Party. I'm talking about as a broader philosophical movement. And its application starts getting applied in many different places uh, and uh, is still evolving. Uh, so so let's leave that there. Uh, as always, if you feel like we've missed anything, or if there's anything that you feel we should correct, then please, editor at com. Um, I know you guys love to correct us. Uh, so, um, you know, this is not a totally comprehensive thing, but just, we're trying to give you a quick overview and define... Sort of the history of some of these terms and where things are coming from. So, if there's anything that you'd like us to kind of touch on that you have always thought, you know, hey, I always hear this term. What does this mean? I always hear this uh, ideology. What does this mean? Not so much about the issues. Or I've heard of this guy, right? Or this woman. And, What's the and, importance yeah. of this? You know, objectivism or the Chicago School of Economics or Murray Rothbard. What are the? So that's kind of what we're going for. We're trying to give you a quick history of of a lot of these um, strains of thinking. So with that we say uh, farewell, Alvider saying um, and goodbye. Uh, Matt, thank you I'll
1: for uh to do, do to you and you and you
0: <laughs> thank you Matt for putting together the the framework of this and yeah, no kind of leading us uh, leading my dumbass uh, towards good show prep. Because <laughs> without Matt, I'd be lost on this. So, all right. Thanks so much for listening, and we will catch you on the next episode of Defined. All right. Thank you.